1: Hey, hey, Seattle. Welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. Happy Labor Day weekend. So excited. It's uh, bumper shoot time, and of course, it's Harvest Time. Speaking of laboring, we know we want to acknowledge and salute all those uh, vineyards, the uh, grape pickers, the all the vineyard workers out there uh, in eastern Washington and around the Puget Sound. Of course Oregon etc. It's harvest time uh, congratulations on and a happy harvest to you. Uh, we hope that the grapes are pristine and we can't wait well I guess we'll have to wait for the wine. So it is a Bumbershoot weekend and there's uh, great music and uh, festival here at Seattle Center and I'm happy to be right across the street uh, this evening. It's still going on, lots and lots of fun. Um, but if you can't make Bumbershoot you need to come and enjoy the Bumbershoot of Wine. This is next weekend. Uh, the Seattle Wine Awards presents the Washington in Oregon Gold Medal Wine Experience. And this is uh, an event where we have 50 plus wineries, over 150 gold and double gold award winning wines. And that's important to know because this is uh, this has been vetted by sommeliers and masters of wine and wine directors and journalists. I mean, these people tasted it. So four out of five or five out of five said, hey, this wine is great and uh, we're pouring it. Saturday, September 12th, over at the Seattle Waterfront Marriott. Uh, We've got two tickets. The VIP admission starts at 4.30, and then the uh, Wine Enthusiast admission starts at 6.00. It goes till 9.00 p.m. You've got at least three hours to enjoy great food, uh, meet the winemakers, the people who represent these fantastic brands from Washington and Oregon, and of course, a chance to sip on some great, great wines. Gold and double gold-winning wines, 150 of them plus. Um, You should check it out. Tickets available at the West Event benefits this great organization. I live in West Seattle and I'm happy to partner with them. Uh, tickets available and information WestSeattleFoodBank.org or SeattleWineAwards.com Seattle and I uh, hope you know that, uh, well, you, I'm sure you know, I, I love to go out and about uh, around this town and around the state and do some In the Vineyard series. And uh, I have the dis- extreme pleasure, the distinct privilege, to uh, to meet with one of South Africa's iconic winemakers. And that's a long ways away. And I'm going to South Africa in about a year or so, and I'm going to check out their wineries. And uh, this is a an interview I did uh, about three weeks ago over at Wild Ginger in Seattle. It's featuring Anthony... Hamilton Russell, iconic Pinot Noir maker, uh, Chardonnay maker, and a uh, really great guy. Um, so fun. So hope you
2: enjoy this conversation uh, from the wines of South Africa with Anthony Hamilton Russell. Thank you, Christopher. And it's wonderful to be in this beautiful city on such a gorgeous day. We've
1: been very fortunate to have uh, three great summers in a row, and uh, we hope it continues. I imagine the weather is nice in South Africa. First of all, we know um, it's July here, and
2: it's July there, but what's the weather like in South Africa? We're largely cold and rainy. It's a Mediterranean climate, and this is our bad bit. And actually, we want the rain. Well, every place
1: needs rain, especially Seattle. This was our our northwest uh, first drought in a long time, um, but quite interesting that uh, you 're a maritime climate, so South Africa is the tip the southern tip of the
2: African continent. Tell me how large the country is and how many people live there well you 've got me on the size, but between our main city, Johannesburg, and our so called beautiful city, the lovely city of Cape Town. It's, it's 1,500 kilometers, so about as far as London is from Florence in Italy. It's a big country. That is a big country. And so we're we talking 50 million people. How many people? You're very close. It's in that region, and the last census, when it was taken, was in the region of 45 to 48, I seem to recall. Oh, ah, very good. Well, some of the um, some of the media we see from South Africa, it's not much. Obviously,
1: Nelson Mandela was a big part of it. Um, and in my wine studies, I taught talk, we talked about and studied uh, the K, uh, the KW. What was it? The KWV. KWV. Right. So that was uh, the cooperative, the uh, cooperative wine virgin. How did they say it? <laughs>
2: It was a kind of a quasi-government body that governed the behavior of the industry, set production levels where you may produce wine, minimum payments for a ton of grapes, and uh, it was designed to protect the industry that was in an overproduction stage against bankruptcy because of deflating prices.
1: Okay, so we can go back to um, South Africa. Obviously, the winemaking spirit uh, uh, started there in the
2: early 1800s is that correct it's actually a lot further I think the first wine was documented as made by um, the, the first uh, Simon vanestalhl in 1658 I remember now because I can see that in my mind uh, quite interesting so that is coming up on you know 400
1: plus years of history and uh, you talked about the kwV w- what year was this this is the decade most recently right
2: yes the kwV basically as the English uh, as, as the industry liberalized uh, post the release of Mandela and the move towards a sort of a true democracy for the country. Um, It really um, was in full force, I suppose, in in the early 1900s with a a situation of massive overproduction – poverty amongst the grape grows, and it was there to control that situation and retain some sort of control over the industry up until really the first proper democratic elections in 1994.
1: Interesting. So uh, South African wine was uh, quite popular in the late 1800s and mid-1800s from, from around the world, and um, now here we are in the early 2000s, and uh, I understand that as of 2015, South Africa is uh, kind of popping on the map again.
2: Absolutely. We've had waves of interest. When sanctions were lifted, everyone was intrigued, and I'm afraid some of the wines disappointed them, and that level of interest waned somewhat. Somehow in 2002, there was another little boom of interest, and again, I think some of the cheap and cheerful high-volume wines disappointed. That's not what people were looking to the country to supply. I'm speaking more specifically about America. England has had a long relationship with us and looked to that. For some inexplicable reason, there's just a complete renewed focus and interest on the top end of South Africa at the moment. Not just the U.S., but the U.K. and Europe as well. Many times when there's a focus on a a, a wine region, what we find is uh, both a consumer
1: interest, obviously, but also a commercial interest. Has the the industry sort of reinvested in itself to rebrand or update its winemaking facilities and philosophy?
2: I think wherever you put a whole lot of well-capitalized competitive individuals in a confined space – with such an ego-intensive product as wine, you get an enormous amount of investment, often more than is justified. And what we do have is some extraordinarily ambitious individuals with showcase wine properties that are tremendously ambitious for their wine. That's on the kind of more visible end of the industry. But generally, the technology's improved. We have great universities, a lot of science that goes on and interchange with the world. We have a lot of visiting French winemakers, more than 40 each harvest, working in cellars. We're fully engaged with the cutting edge of viticulture and vinification worldwide. And now there's something of the resources to achieve the results. And I'm extraordinarily excited about how quality has improved. Uh, That's very
1: exciting, and it sounds much like Washington. We're rather a, uh, a young, in fact, we are a very young uh, viticultural area in a wine region, uh, having some long history back in the uh, 1800s, much like South Africa, and more importantly, commercialization, uh, really starting in
2: the early 80s. And when we have currently have about almost 900 wineries. How many wineries in South Africa, do you think? It's in the region of 720, but literally one is... Founded each week, every year for some reason, there's about a winery a week. that is great. We've got a great
1: romantic PR agency it's telling everybody how fun it is to make wine and even more fun to sell wine. You get to travel, you get to have lunches and dinners like we're here are at Wild Ginger. I have the pleasure of speaking with Anthony Hamilton Russell, who's the proprietor with his lovely wife Olive of Hamilton Russell Vineyards, and they are in um, well Cape Town or South Africa.
2: And what is your, your exact location? We're about 120 kilometers southeast of Cape Town towards the very southern tip of the continent in a beautiful little coastal resort town called Hermanus, known for its whale watching. And stand on the top of our property, you overlook this beautiful Walker Bay with nothing between us and Antarctica. Oh, my goodness.
1: Uh, well, we had uh, Sarah Palin say she can see Alaska from her way to Russia from her place. You can see Antarctica from your place, which is pretty neat. Uh, when we think about South Africa, let's talk about some of the uh, um, varieties of grapes that are being grown
2: there and styles of wine. Uh, obviously, white, red, rosé, and sparkling, the whole gamut, correct? Correct, yes. At one point, I think we were the sort of seventh largest producer in the world. That's dropped slightly. China's come in and exceeded us. We're known for Shannon Blanc, um, a style of Shannon Blanc that traditionally is sort of cheap and cheerful, high volume, but also some extremely high end Chanel Blancs nowadays. And then we have our own indigenous grape, Pinotage, a cross between Pinot Noir and Sinzo, which was called Hermitage. Pinot Noir and Hermitage became Pinotage. And those would be the grapes that you'd look to South Africa as almost. Um, sole suppliers of in a specific style, but we have the full range. Pinots, Chardonnays, Bordeaux blends, I think, of an incredibly high quantity, quality, a unique style of Sauvignon Blanc, and increasingly the more esoteric plantings of some of the um, renewed varieties, you know, from everything from Roussan, Marsan, a pretty good Syrah. We cannot be pinpointed as doing one thing or two things well. We, it, we run the whole gamut, and certainly at the top end, You would do well to cherry pick amongst a lot of different styles and varieties rather than just look for one thing.
1: And uh, in my studies, obviously, uh, South Africa has been around for well ancient uh, eons and eons it seems, um, but it's still part of the New World for our wine uh, uh, nomenclature. The Old World being Europe, the New World being America, South Af- South America, Africa, and Australia, New Zealand. So when we think about um, the New World styles, and and where did this winemaking um, philosophy or this heritage come from? I mean, you said you're English Irish. I don't know how many winemakers come from England
2: and Ireland yet. Well, There's actually a club of Irish wine people um, with with a a museum back in Ireland, and um, there are an awful lot of them in Bordeaux, and we just happen to be one of them in South Africa, but there are quite a few. The Irish make great exports. And nowadays they're running their own country pretty well, too. So we know that the Dutch, uh, with,
1: their, um, with their navy, and uh, helped colonize and, and found South Africa and for modern day, we'll say. Um, and they had something called burnt wine, which I think was a brandy
2: wine. But uh, did the Dutch have any winemaking influence in the, in the early days? It was less the Dutch. I think they, they created the most amazing, resilient farming community. But it was when the Huguenots uh, were kind of uh, a bunch of um, French Huguenots were exiled. Um, being Protestant at a time of Catholic uh, reign, Uh, They came out as refugees to South Africa and brought with them the most amazing kind of winemaking traditions, philosophies, and skills. Uh, Makes sense. And that's how it works for most of
1: the world. And interesting enough, being in the Southern Hemisphere, obviously uh, the Northern Hemisphere is uh, on the opposite side of the sun calendar, that is. So when it's July and and summer in Seattle, it's uh, cold and rainy, as you said, in South Africa. That way you can come up here and do some winemaking, and we can go down there and not miss a beat. So um, let's talk quickly about uh, Hamilton Russell Vineyards. Tell me about this property, when it was founded, and what's going on there.
2: Well, it's, um, we're relatively new in old world terms. Uh, we were founded in 1975 as a passion and project of my father's, not intending to live on the farm initially or even really make any money out of it. It was just something he loved. He made his money in advertising in Johannesburg, a family business from my grandfather's time, and basically developed the farm in a new area completely, this little coastal resort town right close to the sea. It was. An area that hadn't previously been used for viticulture. And uh, first wines were released in 81. Um, I returned from working as a management consultant and prior to that investment banker. And uh, I love America because I went to business school here and worked for two American companies. But uh, I returned when Mandela was released and the possibility of a future for the country was there and um, took over in 1991 so i'm coming up for my 25th year on the property and i bought the business from the family in 1994.
1: and it was founded in 1881 is that correct i'm sorry
2: 1981 the first wine was 1981 yes 1975 so this year i guess is our 40th year
1: Woo-hoo. well a happy anniversary and originally this uh this parcel, this plot is uh, what, how many acres and, and what was
2: it beginning? It was a, a, a fairly impoverished sheep and wheat farming uh, property. Uh, it was a very poor in the 1930s and my father was able to purchase the land for very little. I don't think there was running water and um, the, it was too small to be valuable as a, as a wheat farm or a sheep farm. But it had um, potential as a wine farm. It's 170 hectares in total, which is multiplied by two and a half roughly for acres and of which 52 hectares is devoted to vineyards for Hamilton Russell Vineyards.
1: How exciting. Well, when we come back from this break, I'll be speaking more with Anthony Hamilton Russell, proprietor, along with his lovely wife, Olive, of Hamilton Russell Vineyards in Cape, South Africa. And next up, we're going to try the Chardonnay, 2014 Chardonnay and the 2000 Hamilton Russell Pinot Noir. So stick around. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio.
3: Kristen Ackerman with Sip Northwest and Cidercraft Magazine, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570 KVI.
0: A look at the world from a Northwest perspective. Lars Larson, live, weekdays, noon to three. Talk Radio 570 KVI, want to know weekends continue. Now, back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. We are here at Wild Ginger in downtown Seattle for
1: part of our In the Vineyard series. And I have the pleasure of speaking with... uh, Anthony Hamilton Russell, who, along with his lovely wife, Olive, are the proprietors of Hamilton Russell Vineyards in Cape, South Africa. Nathan we were talking about uh, your, your winery, Hamilton Russell Vineyards, and you specialize in Chardonnay and Pinot Noir.
2: Yes, it's the only two wines we make. No reserves, no second labels, and we prefer to think of us as not really making Pinot and Chardonnay as much as using them to express the beauty of the site in which they're grown. Uh, that's quite interesting
1: because when it comes down to Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, those are probably two of the most, um, well, expressive grapes that, that define terroir. Obviously, Burgundy is the homeland for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in terms of world-class wines, and we all uh, we long to be the DRC of our own little backyard, I'm sure, at some point, or the Le of course. Um, what's your philosophy on Chardonnay?
2: Well, uh, really, it is, it is a wine that can very subtly express site and soil. But man has probably more impact on it than many grape varieties with a wooding and an ability to change the style. We try to have as little impact on it as possible, and we aim for something that is more austere, tight, mineral, um, less about fruit, less about sweetness. Something that's um, something that really is complex without bigness. And we have the privilege of cool enough temperatures being very close to the ocean and having that very deep, um, when I say deep, it's not actually physically deep, but very heavy, rich clay soil that you would find in, in Burgundy uh, to give us that more austere, tight, hard minerality that I love in Chardonnay. And
1: when it comes to the uh ridge or the oak fermentation, um, what where are you
2: Finding this oak, the Coopers, is it uh, Europe or is it America? Well, it seems weird, but basically we we get French wood. We would love to have South African wood, but we don't have the forests. It grows too quickly. The grain's not tight enough. So it's from French forests and from a top Cooper exclusive suppliers to Domaine Romney Conti, François Freire, in Central Man in Burgundy, and Burgundy, we have a very close and long relationship with them.
1: And how popular is Chardonnay in South Africa? I understand. You know, when I was at the private club earlier, I had Hamilton Russell Vineyards with A and B Imports on my list at the at the Rainier Club. How long um, you've been producing Chardonnay since 1981? Is that correct? And and how many other producers are producing Chardonnay in South Africa?
2: Well, it's a big segment. I think of the white grapes. Chardonnay will always loom large. Uh, we've been producing it actually since 82. It wasn't available. In the country, initially, we—I we, must say—sad to say—smuggled some clones in before it was legally available. Um, but South Africa's Sauvignon Blanc crazy. It's—it's um, it's about 19% of what's drunk in top restaurants. Where Chardonnay would be 9%. Completely different to the U.S. So it's a slightly more esoteric variety for South Africa than a Sauvignon Blanc would be, or Chenin Blanc. But we think at the top end of the industry. It's extraordinary, and um, we're not the only one making what I believe to be great value, really quite special Chardonnay in the country. There are quite a few producers that are making special wines now. And is
1: your area down in uh, your, in the Cape Town, or what's the actual um, ward or
2: district you're in? We're in an area, we're in a district called the Walker Bay, which has reference to that beautiful ocean bay that moderates our temperatures. It's a cold South Atlantic bay. And within that, our AVA is called the Himmel and Arde Valley, which in Old Dutch means heaven and earth valley. It really is a beautiful place.
1: Oh, I love that, uh, heaven and earth. Well, so speaking of this Chardonnay, I had a chance to taste it. And um, 30-year-old vines, it's really a brilliant wine. Um, I think... The best wines in the world have something in common, and that's acidity, and this wine had bright natural acidity.
2: Yes, thank you. I'm, I'm very keen on high acid in wines. I think as, we, uh, as we're new to wine, as we put down the beer and pick up a glass of wine, acidity is something that bothers us. The more wine we drink, the more we start accommodating it. It's like there are more dishes you put a squeeze of lemon on than a spoonful of sugar, and we have a tautness and a tension, a very low pH and a high acid in our wines as a function of our site and soil and climate. Um, and I loved it. It's absolutely delicious. And what I find is an incredible great
1: value. Coming all the way, I don't know what a letter takes to get here from Seattle to South Africa, but I understand that uh, this Chardonnay is uh, under $35 here in the market.
2: Yes, that's one of the beauties of South Africa. There's, we don't have that very affluent, wine-interested local market to drive up the prices of the best wines, as you would have in, say, California. We're also lucky enough to have quite a weak currency, and this means that the top-end South African wines offer extraordinary value. That won't last forever, but there is a period of extreme value if you cherry-pick the best of South Africa. And I'm sure we can find these wines at Esquin and McCarthy and Shearing. And, uh, what's your website? In development. I'm rather embarrassed to say it was appalling and we're just upgrading it, but it will be HamiltonRussellVineyards.com.
1: HamiltonRussellVineyards.com. Well, you got to keep up with the technology, and there's always there's always a budget for new investment in technology. Um, let's move on to the Pinot Noir. This is a 2014, as was the Chardonnay. And uh, tell me your philosophy on Pinot Noir. Is it much like uh,
2: the Burgundy style? Well, this really we think of as the red wine experience of the site, Hamilton Russell Vineyards. Um, It's also suited to our very heavy clay soils and uh, benefits from our very moderate temperatures as a result of close proximity to the cold South Atlantic. Our philosophy on Pinot Noir is that it should be like fine literature. It should engage you, possibly be a bit complex and difficult, but a wine that is thought-provoking and requires something of you. Pinot Noir is all too easily a very simple Pretty Beautiful expression, soft, round and easy There's a lot of that made in the world There's a very little profound Pinot Noir made in the world And uh, we obviously seek inspiration from the great wines of the Cote de Nuit And have the privilege of often being confused with them Uh, So Pinot Noir to me is my desert island wine of choice It's challenging, it's difficult, it expresses the vintage dramatically And every year tells a different story of place for us And we're on our 35th vintage now with 2015.
1: That's very exciting. And uh, I had the pleasure of tasting the 2014 Pinot Noir today. And uh, my notes were, um, it it, it had some earthy notes, a touch of herbal cinnamon, nutmeg, cardamom, gram. the moderate plus acid, moderate plus tannin. I thought it was very pretty and great acidity. I I couldn't get the alcohol.
2: It seemed like 13.5 to me. But uh, tell me what the alcohol is. Is it something close to that? Yeah, you're almost spot on. It's um, it's just a touch under 13 and a half, and that's one of our features is in a cooler area, we're able to get phenolic ripeness in our grapes at lower alcohols. So we don't suffer from that fat sense of sweetness you can get with higher alcohol wines and I'm really pleased you picked up on all the spices because if the wine is just an expression of fruit well we know there's fruit juice for us <laughs> uh, you need those other factors that you find it hard to pin down and definitely the cloves and cinnamon and things like that, I almost call them Christmas pudding spices uh, that, that I pick up in, in our pinot uh, along with the fruit
1: well, a fantastic wine. Um, and 35-year-old vines, that's something to be said. Obviously, we have a, uh, a big state next door to us called Oregon that makes some wine. And I understand you were down
2: the INPC, IPNC, the International Pinot Noir uh, Conference. We were, and it was an extraordinary event. We showed our 13. Uh, the 14 is young, but it's a function of how quickly our wines are selling. Um, it was very, very well received. And I was just so blown away by the differences. I was there 21 years ago last, I think 1994, and the number of producers has escalated. The average quality of the wines has improved. And uh, we're going to have to watch out. I think Oregon has really got some pretty special things happening there. Not every wine is the style that appeals to me, but their increasing number of tight, structured, dark, complex, quite, frankly, quite interesting wines being produced there. And uh, obviously the food and, and the setting is just extraordinary.
1: Yeah, the IPNC, uh, I think what they're in their 34th year or something. I think I was there in 1983 at the first one. It was uh, quite interesting for a, a teenage boy to sip sneak wines from the tables. I had the pleasure of speaking with Anthony Hamilton Russell, the uh, co-proprietor with his lovely wife Olive from Hamilton Russell Vineyards. And their website is HamiltonRussellVineyards.com. Check it out here. They should have that up in a, a month or two, and it should be nice and uh, interesting. Obviously, um, quickly, what is a uh, one or two words that might encapsulate uh, a summary of the South African wine industry?
2: First and foremost, we can't be uh, labeled as doing just one or two things. There are a whole lot of things I think the industry does fairly well, particularly at the top end. Think of us for the top end, not the mass-produced wines. And then secondly, if... You don't like that rather large, excessive, ebullient, typically New World style of wine, and you're a bit of a Francophile. You like that sense of classicism, austerity, and slight expression. South Africa sits as an industry very comfortably between those two extremes. It's got a little bit of both. Think of us for that hint of Europe in the wines. Uh,
1: lovely. Well, you certainly are an old-world place making new-world wines with the best of both worlds. And I want to thank you, Anthony Hamilton-Russell. Thanks so much for joining me on
2: Happy Hour Radio. Thanks very much, Christopher.
1: Hey, had a great time with Anthony Hamilton-Russell and, of course, our friends over at Wild Ginger. Thanks, Courtney Lees and Martin Bealy for hosting a great luncheon. The food is fantastic there, and, of course, the wines were amazing. If you ever had a chance to do some South african tasting, I uh, hope you'll start with uh, Hamilton Russell. Those wines are are pure and uh, clean and absolutely delicious, and even their Pinotage, which gets a bad rap, but uh, you know what? It's an adventure in wine. And coming up next, I've got uh, one of my uh, longtime friends here in the culinary world, uh, Miss Cynthia Nims, who is the, well, the author and the founder of Mon Appetit. And I'm going to have her on uh, as we move into the fall and uh, winter, and we talk about some great recipes for uh, entertaining and how to make cocktails uh, by the pitcher, which is uh, certainly going to be fun. Um, Cynthia Nims, uh, she's a fellow West Seattleite, and uh, I'm excited to have her uh, be one of my um, regular features. I think it's important to have food and wine when we're talking on Happy Hour Radio. So I'm very pleased uh, to welcome that. When we come back from this break, we'll be diving into something tasty, salty. Crunchy and fun. So stick around, we'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio.
3: guys with clips and venues and you're listening to happy hour radio with Christopher Chan on 570 KVI.
0: a look at the world from a Northwest perspective Lars Larson live weekdays noon to three talk radio 570 KVI want to know weekends continue now back to happy hour radio with Christopher Chan.
1: All right, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. It's time for round three, and we've been drinking a lot of wine on this show, and uh, I'm curious about some cocktails. Now I have my friend Cynthia Nims, who's the, uh, well, she's a wine food writer for Seattle Magazine, Alaska Airlines, and has her own blog called com. She's been on the show before, and I'm happy to welcome her back. Uh, we're going to chat about, uh, well, how to cocktail with lots of people and keep yourself being the, the supreme host and hostess. So Cynthia Nims, welcome back to Happy Hour.
3: Hey, thanks, Christopher. It's great to be back.
1: Yeah, it's good to have you. And uh, I've been longing for cocktails, and interesting about this town is that we've got so many distilleries and bartenders, but they're always busy. <laughs>
3: <I> <laughs> and know. so I'm
1: glad that you and I can can share some secrets about how to entertain at home or uh, at some place where you you have lots of people. And I know the craft cocktail boom is great about mixing each cocktail and you know stirring and having the specific ice cube, etc. But I don't have time for that when i got 30 people in my backyard trying to have fun. So um, give me some tips on what we can do. Can we put cocktails in a pitcher? My grandpa used to make martinis in a pitcher, and I love that because, you know... (laughs) Pitcher would be gone, <laughs> and he'd be asleep at some point. But um, tell me what what are some cool ideas for entertaining on a large scale?
3: Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm kind of with you uh, in that. You know, I, I am a huge advocate for the craft cocktail. I'm a huge fan, and some great bartenders are friends of mine. And it makes me feel a little conflicted about just embracing pitchers because I know, you know, it's a little sort of different style of cocktailing. Um, when you've got just a handful of folks over, sure, you can shake to order and um, make, you know, sort of really specific craft drinks for each person, but I find that after a little while, A, it gets a little messy, because you've got the ice you're shaking out and the, the little strainer thing that sort of is dripping on the counter, um, and in and the gotta long run... you got to pour it out and rinse, because each, yeah, scla- each yeah, cocktail different needs drinks its are own, different. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I... Found when I was uh, working on this particular book that was all about entertaining gourmet game night, where you're gathering friends together to sit around a table and enjoy time together, playing games and eating well. That's also a time you don't want to be saying, "Hey, so and so needs a new Negroni." I'm mean, gonna, I'll be back in a minute, and you stall the game and the conversation to go make that one cocktail. So I decided to just totally embrace the cock- the picture cocktails, which brings to mind like the Thin Man, and you know they're stirring cocktails in the you know in the forties in those old movies, and in um, Auntie Mame, you know they're drinking cocktails by the gallon. Because
1: um, the whole pitcher is like <laughs> really what thirty two, <laughs> four Well, it, I,
3: I realized at home I have I have my cocktail. Sh- um, pitcher which is small and demure and sort of sophisticated size it's i don't use the same pitcher that i do my iced tea in let's right. just go there you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> unless you really are having a huge crowd over so i think that's actually one of the cool things is if you are a cocktail lover it actually is a fun little addition to your cocktail accoutrements to have a sleek um, pitcher with, you know, the nice little stirrer that comes with it. Um, it's a nice aesthetic, actually, too. The thing um, I find, just in terms of the host-hostess um, comfort level, is that you it's sort of just done. In the, at the beginning of the evening, you make a nice pitcher of cocktail, you pour some to start the evening, and then you put it in the fridge, and it stays cool um folks, you know, if you trust your friends, you know, they can just go over there and <laughs> refill their glasses, you know, as time needs. Like if you are playing games or poker or something, someone can just pop up from the table for 30 seconds to go top off their cocktail quickly and it doesn't sort of stall the energy of the night, um, and you can do some really fun things. The trick is, you know, you certainly don't want to put all your ice in the cocktail exactly. pitcher and then pour the drink in because obviously it's going to get diluted. So you just approach it a little differently than you might um, sort of your your um, usual on the rocks sort of one, on, one by one cocktail or shaken cocktail. But I think there's ways around it. And again, if it's in the fridge, it's going to stay naturally chilled and you can always add a little ice cube to each glass as you're you know, serving them later. Yeah, a so picture, a nice picture of
1: cocktails doesn't mean it's going to be uh, less sophisticated or or less personalized or or less delicious because it's in quote unquote bulk. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is kind of the Costco mentality. Let's just make a lot of great stuff and then make sure that it's ready to serve at any given time. Sure. So let's talk about some ideas. Uh, obviously, we are in the, uh, well, the on the edges of fall, um, and but. Pictures of cocktails can can always be a different style of, of uh, weight, uh, citrus based or um, you know juice based or tell me what some ideas you have.
3: Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, I started like I'm a I'm a really classic cocktail gal, so I love a good martini. Um, and what I did with my version that was again in this this particular book was go rosemary with the martini. Um, and just and again this is kind of a pretty aesthetic since you have a picture to have a really pretty um, branch of rosemary from the garden and have it. Sort of steeping in with uh-huh. the spirit, um, so it adds a little pretty aesthetic, and it adds that a little hint of some very complementary um, herbal character, complementary to that gin. You know, it sort of echoes the junipery um, base of of, um, of gins. It's, so that was kind of cool. Let's
1: talk about rosemary for a second. It seems to be everywhere. Rosemary's growing in everyone's yard yeah. at some point. <laughs> it's now, one thing we do well here, yeah. We can use that. Just pick a branch off. Yeah, and...
3: yeah. Okay. Yeah, make sure you know it's above. You know, pet level, um, <laughs> and you know is in good Above shape. Above Great and st- Dane level, maybe. Yeah, huh? thankfully my dogs next door are very short. So, um, but yeah, I th- yeah, I I don't know of any rosemary. I mean, I think you know as long as it's a culinary rosemary, yeah. uh, it is prolific. I mean, that's for sure. So some gardens may make it look like it's kind of a weed, but um, it's a really delicious herb. It's st- got a strong flavor, so you use it with moderation. So mm-hmm. here, you know, it's just going to subtly accent the. Um, Martini because you're not like chopping it up, and it's cool case, is that it's
1: fresh too. Yeah, exactly. So you get the fresh flavor versus the uh, macerated or percolated. And flavors. you can
3: even see here, um, we played around a little bit with using one of the sticks, you know, the actual rosemary um, yeah, branch to um, take off some of the little leaves, and you can put your olive right on toothpicks. that, and it becomes a really pretty little accent too. That's fine. Um, but you're absolutely right; you can do pretty much any cocktail. um These classic cocktails. Um, I have a Negroni in here and sort of a twist on a Manhattan. But then, you know, why not have fun and do. Uh, I did like a strawberry ginger champagne cocktail. Ooh, let's so let's talk playing about that. Around with. Um, I used well. You're using a blanc de blanc or just any sort of dry. Um, so dry, not sweet. Yeah, dry, not sweet sparkling wine and uh, some fresh ginger. Yes. And you make a little syrup with the water with some water and sugar and in, in the fresh ginger. So it's a, a nice peppery flavor that you get there, and then some fresh chopped strawberries. And- so when
1: you do the ginger, you peel it first, and you just get the raw ginger root, and then you, what, smash it a little bit and just put it in the sugar, equal parts water and sugar?
3: Yeah, I coarsely chop it, because um, it you know, the more expo- the more flesh that's exposed, the quicker sure. it's going to infuse. Um, so coarsely chop it and um, let it simmer in the water for... Uh, well, bring it to a, a simmer with the water for about five minutes and then just let it sit for half an right. hour or an hour to draw off that flavor. And then you're, you strain it off and just use the liquid.
1: Cool. And then the fresh strawberries, are those also minced or diced or...
3: Yeah. Yeah, those just get... Um, mashed basically um and stirred into the ginger syrup so they're so you're pureed. yeah, yeah. pulverized yeah yeah okay and then um and then it just becomes a very uh sort of effervescent sparkly fun now for cocktail. the pitcher as
1: long as you keep the pitcher cold you'll still maintain the bubbles that's mm-hmm. the key for for anything with soda and bubbles and yeah sparkling yeah
3: and some stuff yeah obviously sparkling um you may hopefully consume that a little quicker than you might the manhattans or the still you know, still <laughs> beverages um because you know it'll it will yeah, hold, it'll, hold, f- hold out. Yeah, it'll
1: keep you through the evening. Yeah,
3: and um, so I think I think there's just a lot of uh, a lot to be said for giving yourself a break and not you know handshaking every cocktail for your, your yeah. You can make them deliciously. Every, yeah. Deliciously
1: simple as well. Yeah, and yeah. elegant. Well, one yeah. more. Give us one more real quick.
3: Sure. Well, I let's see. I also did um, well my Manhattan. I spiced up the cherries a little bit and yeah. just infused them in a combination that had uh, some orange zest and black pepper, which I think I think pepper is actually a really great complement to cocktails. Um, with uh, along with the cloves and cinnamon and those warm spices, uh, and then you just uh, you soak your uh, cherries in some of the bourbon yes. and in that mixture, and then that little. So if you make more than you need and just keep it in your fridge forever and ever it's just a delightful thing to have on hand like months you know I think that it's it would hold pretty well as I hope as so
1: I've got mine for like two years yeah. I, I do cherries every year but I yeah. don't drink enough manhattans when it's hot
3: yeah and the nice thing is you don't have to have peak season fresh cherries it's really like a high quality um, dried cherry like chucker locally is a sure. prime example Um they you might want to do them a little farther in advance and have them on hand, you know, a week in advance or something, so they do plump up a, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, um, you get much
1: more concentrated flavor. Yeah, sometimes.
3: yeah, absolutely, and I I think that's a delight. And then you can use a little bit of that syrup in the Manhattan, mm-hmm. and so it accents the flavor. And just you know, again, it takes a really delightful classic cocktail and adds a little character to oh, it.
1: So fun. So we can find some of these on OneUpAtTea.com, or where can we? With-
3: yeah, I do have a little. I think I I have um I think it's the um the champagne ginger. On there, um, and I can go. You know what I'll try to do is make sure there's another one on online by the time folks awesome. head over there. Um, but it's a really fun way to go. And and just a little added tidbit: if you are doing like poker night or game night, playing board games and stuff, I be- have become absolutely devoted. Again, this is a little. Um, Not everybody's favorite, but stemless glasses.
1: Stemless glasses for sure. Yeah. Well, Cynthia and M, such a great pleasure to have you talking about uh, cocktails and pictures and lots of fun. Uh, We'll have you back, and I want you to be a regular, so stick around. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio.
0: with the northwest chocolate festival and you're listening to happy hour radio with christopher chan on 570 kvi only one station has sean hannity weekdays 3 to 6 p.m on talk radio 570 kvi it's kvi want to know weekends and you're listening to happy hour radio now back to seattle somalia christopher chan
1: all right, what a great show, and I'm still thirsty. It's time for segment four and our reality radio segment. I'm pleased to welcome back Vicky Luthold, co-owner of Maryhill Winery, for our A Day in the Life of Maryhill Winery. And, Vicky, welcome back. Thank you. Hey, so uh, I know last week we were chatting about preparation for harvest, and I imagine the grapes are coming in, and uh, um, that's probably, you know, nonstop. How many days of harvest do you think you have coming up?
4: We will probably be harvesting
1: through the third week of October, at least. Holy smoke! So, right, this is just now in September, and that's a long time. Are grapes coming in every day?
4: Not every day. We uh, sometimes our uh, fermentation tanks get full, and so we need to let some hang time happen so we can empty out a tank and then get more grapes in. It's, uh, it's, when it's really busy, it's just about managing the fermentation. Tanks and
1: leapfrogging them as they open up and go into barrel. And, and wow! And we think UPS has some logistics stuff going on. <laughs> I'm sure the winery <laughs> but can rival it. <laughs> oh, you're right. They're they're 24 uh, seven, three sixty five. Well, um, speaking of October, I know that uh, as we we uh, well we fall into the season and into football. And um, what kind of fun stuff? I know the next year we look forward to the summer concert series coming back. But what's happening down in Maryhill this October?
4: Well, we've got a couple of weekends of Harvest Fest happening. The first weekend, October 3rd and 4th, we'll have, um, of course, you know, grapes being processed, which is always fun. I think it's the best time for people to come see a winery. Sure, you buy it on the shelf or you buy it at the winery, but to see it start and and really understand the patience and the length of time it takes to make a bottle is really special. So you get to see what's going on there. We always have a couple of half barrels full of grapes so people can stomp and And see what that feels like and get a little um, pedicure while they're here.
1: (laughs) Ah, too funny. Now that's bare feet required, correct?
4: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And then we usually have some wine specials going on, and a lot of picnicking happening, and music playing, and uh, so that's really fun, and that's the first uh, weekend, October 3rd and 4th, and we do it again October 10th and 11th if you can't make one or the other.
1: So the public's invited to come down to Maryhill Winery and enjoy uh, a day or a weekend of stomping and tasting and uh, picnicking and music. Now, is this a complimentary event, or is there a, a ticket cost?
4: No, totally complimentary.
1: Wow, that's great. Well, that sounds really fun. I, I definitely have to make it down there because uh, I still have yet to head over that way. And I'm excited. I'm going to make it my uh, well my goal to be down there. And I have never actually stomped on grapes myself. Oh,
4: it's a great feeling. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Squishy between your toes, all the seeds and spurs. Um, I bet it probably is. It's therapeutic, I'm sure. Uh, uh-huh. So exciting. Well, um, I, I imagine you've stomped on grapes before, have you?
4: Oh yes, I have many times. Was
1: that early on on your winemaking when you sort of said, "Hey, let's try this and see if we can go old world on it"?
4: Yeah, and actually here I make a small batch for our family every year with a girlfriend who grows Sangiovese, and we use our cab and we do a little super Tuscan for our family every year, about a pallet worth of wine, and we'll we'll stomp that by foot.
1: I like it. Well, you have to call it Pied something, right? Because you get the <laughs> <laughs> you're using you're using Tuscan wines, but that's Piedmont, meaning foothills, or anyway. Um, well, that's really exciting. Do you actually put a label on it too?
4: We do. We do. It's called On um, Palma.
1: On um, Palma. Is that having? Yep. Is that a, a mixture of two names or something? Or
4: no, it means sundial in the native tongue down here. And, oh. and the, my girlfriend grows the San Bay down at the Sundale area, which is a westernized. Uh, name for the
1: sundial region i see well i like that you are uh paying homage to the uh the native americans and that uh have existed here for so long and it's kind of cool i think the world is actually embracing that again to say you know what there's a lot of history here that we've kind of neglected and it's really cool history and uh, yeah and i'm excited to uh well i want to taste that so do you have some old library vintages of that or is it just so good it goes it's gone every vintage
4: no, uh, that's, we're making quite a bit. We're sitting on quite a few vittages, actually. Okay. If you make it down here, I'll be happy to share it with
1: you. Oh, fun. All right. Well, I definitely want to taste some, uh, some grapes that have actually some wine that's been stumped by uh, those lovely 10 toes, or actually be 20 toes, perhaps, <laughs> with you and the girl. And yeah. uh, That's funny. D- d- you should make. Uh, you should sort of uh, uh, trademark some wine colors, you know. What is the colors that come out of the grapes of st- stomping on Cabernet for you know, an hour?
4: Well, you know, it's a beautiful color, and actually, it's funny you should bring it up, because during Harvest Fest, we always have a couple of t-shirt designs that you can tie-dye in that juice if you want. Oh, so it's fun. some beautiful purples and, and different degrees of uh, uh, garnet to, to kind of a lilac color. I
1: love it. Harvest Fest down at Mary Hill Winery, uh, October 3rd and 4th and 10th and 11th. Um, information available at Mary Hill, maryhill.com. Mary, Maryhillwinery.com. Maryhillwinery.com. Vicki, so great to talk to you again. Thanks so much for joining us on Happy Hour Radio. Our pleasure. All right, that's Vicki Luthold, and uh, you should make plans to head down to Maryhill. I will be there. I'm going to do it. I want to tie-dye a shirt. I want to stomp on some grapes, and I want to check out Vicky's toes. <laughs> hey, thanks again for joining us this week on Happy Hour Radio, 6 to 7 right here in 570 KVI. And remember, folks, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers.